This film is lit, the podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian, and I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. So prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide if the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. You tell your lies, and you think no one will know. But there are two people who will know. Yes, two people. Your God and Hercule Poirot. It's Murder on the Orient Express, and this film is lit. Hello, and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We have a nice full episode. Every I don't have a Lost in Adaptation, I think I'm realizing. I Did I? No, you didn't. No. I'm sure there was something I was confused about. <laughs> I didn't. There was a, maybe too many things. I was Not really, but I didn't have any uh, Lost in Adaptation. But we have every other segment. Uh, we're going to get right into our summary. Before we do, we wanted to warn you, spoilers. Uh, it's, it's a six-year-old movie and an 89-year-old <laughs> book. But if you don't want, you know, how this ends spoiled... Uh, probably just skip the episode until you've read or watched <laughs> this because it's, you know, kind of uh, pivotal to what we're going to be discussing is uh, I, the solution throughout. So, yeah, here's your warning. Skip it if you don't want to know what happens in Murder on the Orient Express. Otherwise, if you want a summary and you haven't seen it or watched it or read it, here is a brief summary and let me sum up. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Murder on the Orient Express follows famed international detective Hercule Perrault as he takes the train across Europe during a winter snowstorm. On the train along with him are a colorful cast of characters, including an English governess, a Russian princess, a shady American businessman, a Hungarian count and, count and countess, and more. One of the passengers, Mr. Ratchet, is murdered in the night just before the train is stopped by the snow. Since that means that the murderer is still on board the train, Perot steps up to solve the mystery. He examines the evidence and discovers that Ratchet's real name was Cassetti, and he was responsible for the kidnapping and murder of Daisy Armstrong, a two-year-old girl from a prominent American family a few years prior, but managed to evade justice. Perot conducts interviews with the passengers and slowly discovers that many of them have curious connections to the Armstrong case, and most of them possess either the motive, opportunity, or both in the case of Cassetti's murder. With multiple lies uncovered and everyone looking equally guilty, Poirot deduces that the murder was committed by not one or two of the passengers, but by all of them together in an act of vigilante justice for Daisy Armstrong, who they all knew and loved. Poirot presents this theory alongside another theory, that the murder was committed by a rival of Cassetti's, who joined the train disguised as a conductor and then left, taking his chances in the snow. One of the passengers reveals herself to be Daisy Armstrong's grandmother and confesses to being the mastermind behind the crime, but Perot turns to the train's director and suggests that they tell the police that it was an outsider who committed the murder. All right, we have uh, the maybe the most guess who's <laughs> that we've ever had. So let's get to that. 
Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. Okay. I am not going to get these. I don't, <laughs> there's too many characters and I don't remember names. I don't, I barely remember all of their like what they are. I'll, I will help you along. But I'll do my best. Um, I'm yeah, probably going to go a... by actor names, honestly. Probably, if I, yeah. if I was going to, uh, that's how I'm probably going to guess. That's understandable. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a nice healthy guess who section. Um, I've got my cheat sheet here because I could not remember what all the answers are. <laughs> Um, but let's get started. A small man muffled up to the ears of whom nothing was visible but a pink-tipped nose and the two points of an upward-curled mustache. Well, he's got an upward-curled mustache. To, I believe I've seen pictures of other depictions of Perot, and he has an up-curled mustache. In this one, it's not particularly upward-curled. A little bit, I guess, at the sides, but it's... I'm just going to go. The mustache is all I got to go on here. So I'm so I'm going to say that this is Hercule Poirot. It is. Yeah, usually with the upward curled mustache, uh, Kenneth Branagh's mustache is very healthy. Yeah, um, but not really upward curled. I, I think it is a little bit, if a little, I, but not in the same way. Like I saw the picture of the guy from the 70s one when you were doing the poll yeah. or whatever. And that one is much more. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Upward curled. All right. Moving on. She was tall, slim, and dark, perhaps 28 years of age. He rather liked the severe regularity of her features and the delicate pallor of her skin. He liked the burnished black head with its neat waves of hair and her eyes, cool, impersonal, and gray. Okay, so younger woman, uh, tall, slim, and dark, um, severe regularity of her features, delicate pallor of her skin. This is Daisy Ridley. It is Daisy Ridley. I don't know who else it would be in the movie. I mean, I guess it could <laughs> yeah, be um, uh, Penelope Cruz's character, maybe. Yeah, Mary Debenham, um, a.k.a. Daisy Ridley. This was a tall man of between 40 and 50, lean of figure, brown of skin, with hair slightly grizzled round the temples. Uh, I mean, very not a lot to go on here. Uh the only character who's brown of skin in the movie would be the doctor played by Aaron Burser. Mm -hmm. I don't is know that, that character. It's the doctor. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, <laughs> the Leslie Odom Jr. Leslie Odom Jr. Yes, sorry, character, yeah, yeah. Uh, Colonel Arbuthno, I believe is how it's pronounced. Um, he's. I'm not sure if he has the title of Colonel in the movie, but he is a doctor. In the I think movie. they they might refer because they talk about him being in the military yeah. at some point. So I think there is reference to him being a colonel, but I, I could I could, I don't remember exactly. He was a man perhaps of between 60 and 70. His slightly bald head, his domed forehead, the smiling mouth that displayed a very white set of false teeth all seemed to speak of a benevolent personality. Only his eyes belied this assumption. They were small, deep-set, and crafty. <sighs> um, uh, we're getting into this could be anybody, not anybody. 60 or 70, the oldest character in this movie, and I, I don't know this. I don't even know if I know who this guy, like, what his role, like, what he is in the movie. Like, if he, what his p profession, because that's usually how I remembered most of the people. I'm going to say this is the old man. Are you thinking of the valet? Is he a the valet? Guy, the guy who had who reveals that he has cancer, that he's like dying. Yes. 
Yeah. That guy. Yeah, that only happens in the movie, by the way. Um, you're wrong. Oh. <laughs> this is the Ratchet slash. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's Johnny Depp's character. Yeah, so they aged him up in the well, not aged him up. The movie aged him down. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Johnny Depp, I guess, was not that much younger than sixty, but right, Johnny Depp's probably like when they filmed this, I mean, he's probably he's like in probably, his fifties, I would think. Yeah, at this point. I mean, they filmed this. This is like twenty seventeen, right? but like the 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 bald head and the false teeth all indicates like a much older looking person than what he looks like in the film. Yeah, yeah. I actually did think about Johnny Depp's character because of the his, only his eyes belied his assumption they were small, deep set, and crafty. Like that was that was the part that spoke to me. Like, okay, this might be uh, Cassetti mm-hmm. because he's you know a, a mobster or whatever. Um, but the rest of it didn't really match with Johnny Depp's character. So yeah, I mean, you're not doing you're not doing that bad so far. And three out of four is not too, too terrible. At a small table was one of the ugliest old ladies he had ever seen. Round her neck was a collar of very large pearls. Her hands were covered with rings. A small and expensive toque was hideously unbecoming to the yellow toad-like face beneath it. Uh, I I deign not besmirch the name of Dame Judy Dench by saying that this is her character. But I have to assume this might be her character. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> she is the the, the, uh, Russian, the Russian princess. princess. Yeah, Judy right? Dench. Yes. Yellow toad-like face. <laughs> the book goes back over and over to how ugly she is. It's kind of funny. She's in the movie. She has an ugly personality at times. She seems very like she's just, like severe and, and severe. And, yeah. yeah, so for sure. One of the women was tall and middle-aged in a plaid blouse and tweed skirt. She had a mass of faded yellow hair unbecomingly arranged in a large bun, wore glasses, and had a long, amiable face rather like a sheep. I have no idea. Um, This could be uh, Penelope Cruz. This could be um, the one that sticks out to me the most, and the fact that it's next to Judy Dench's character, and you, you tend to be not... You tend not to mix them up too much. I'm going to say that this is uh, not Emma Thompson. Um, whatever the whatever that the, the the hand, not the handmaiden, but the her lady's maid. Yeah, Olivia the Coleman. maid the, for the princess, her, whatever that character. This is actually Penelope Cruz's character. Ugh. That was my second thought yeah. was Penelope Cruz's um, and character. And they, they make a change to her character. They make her Spanish yeah. in the movie, uh, in the book. She is Swedish, I believe. Mm. So they made some changes there. Um, hence her, her blonde hair in yeah. this description. The third woman was a stout, pleasant-faced, elderly person. This doesn't really f- f- match with anybody. In the, uh, um, I'm going to say that this is... There's not... Uh, Judy Dench is the only elderly woman, I think, unless I'm forgetting somebody. No. Oh. Uh, well, but she's not. Yeah, I, this could be Michelle Pfeiffer's character. She's kind of elder. Yeah, I'm going to say this is Michelle Pfeiffer's character. This is Michelle Pfeiffer's character. I'm also going to say that because she got a really <laughs> short description, and I think that's a red herring a bit. You think so? Well, I'm just thinking, like, maybe we don't go as in-depth with our, like, the, the person that turns out to be the mastermind of mm-hmm. the whole spiel. Let's... Fair at least in the movie. I don't know if she's the mastermind of the book, but 
we let's let's you know go in a little le- less detail. She's a third woman, stout, pleasant face, elderly. Boom. Keep it low key. You're not focusing on her. <laughs> we're not getting as many details, so we're kind of pulling attention away. Yeah, for misdirecting sure. our audience for sure. At the far end was a middle-aged woman dressed in black with a broad, expressionless face. German or Scandinavian, he thought. This, now I'm going to say, is the, the maid for the princess. Yeah, yeah, you're right. O- yeah. Olivia Coleman's character. Olivia Coleman, that's yeah. her name. The man wore English clothes of loose tweed, but he was not English. A big man, well-made. A very handsome man of 30-odd with a big, fair mustache. Oh, uh, goodness. I'm going to say that this, okay, this is either, and I don't remember the, I don't even remember this actor's name. Uh, I would say this is either Willem Dafoe or my other thought is that this is Marquez. Uh, so I'm either going with Willem Dafoe or Marquez, who's played by, by uh, Manuel Garcia Rulfo. I'm going to say that this is, man, we're English clothes of loose tweed, but he was not English. I'm going to say this is Willem Dafoe. This is uh, Count Andrani, the the guy who is like randomly fights the photographer, the boyfriend the of the yes. countess. Okay, I forget about them because they're like not in the movie. Yeah, kind they're of. like basically not characters in my opinion. They're introduced early and then they kind of show up later. But compared to the rest of them, I feel like they're not. I didn't remember them. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, when they showed up, because I, I feel like they don't spend time with the rest of or something. I don't. I feel like they're not. There was something about them that when they showed up at the end, I was like, oh, yeah, those people. I don't <laughs> feel like I remember seeing them as part uh-huh. of, like, the rest of the ensemble most of the time. Yeah. Except for, like, a few scenes. I don't know. It was weird. Anyways. Because when he goes and talks to them, they're in, like, a private suite or something. Yeah. And it seems like they didn't. And in my memory, I don't remember seeing them sitting with everybody else as much. She had a beautiful, foreign-looking face, dead white skin, large brown eyes, jet black hair. Her manicured hands had deep red nails. She wore one large emerald set in platinum. Uh, well, then in this case, I would say that this would be the Countess. Yes. Which she is has blonde hair, I think, in the she movie, does, not yeah. black hair. But other than that, I mean, yeah, fair enough. Okay, last one. You can do it. Yeah, I think I, I think <laughs> I think I know who this is. Honestly, he wore a somewhat loud check suit, a pink shirt and a flashy tie pin. He had a big, fleshy, coarse-featured face with a good-humored expression. Josh Gad. This is McQueen. This is Willem Dafoe's what? character. Come on! <laughs> Josh Gad's character doesn't have a description? No, he oh, doesn't. Oh, come on. I thought he wore a check suit in... I thought... He might. I could have swore Josh Gad's character was in a... Maybe not. I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe And maybe Willem Dafoe's is, but... Uh, I was I thought for sure that was Josh Gad's character reading that description. Oh no. Well, at least in the poster, uh Daisy Ridley wears a check a checkered suit. <laughs> I don't know if any of the other ones Yeah, no, nobody else does. Yeah, they made some changes to his character that you have a question about later on, so we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah, he know, he has like a just a jacket in the Yeah. He does not have not neither to be fair, neither does Josh Gad, but whatever. All right. I don't know. I wasn't too bad. I got like half of them. <laughs> at least, right? I got yeah. Like, yeah, you didn't do too bad. Okay. I think I only missed two or three. I missed the count or whatever, or the boyfriend of the countess. I missed nine, eleven, 
and six, right? Is that it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I so. I think so. Oh, you missed four. You missed Johnny Depp's character. Yes. Okay. So I got seven out of the 11. Yeah. Could bad. have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Let's get into them. And was that in the book? Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? So uh, the film opens up uh, on a different case, which is pretty common for um, mystery films, uh, mystery stories to introduce, especially for our ones where we're following a specific detective. Uh, we kind of open up in media res on a case that is not going to be our main case in the in the actual story we're reading or watching. And in the film, it opens up on him in Jerusalem solving a case. And it was really interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about Jerusalem in the in the 50s or 40, 30s, 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 but it was anyways, it's opening step. He's very interesting, but he's he's solving this murder or not murder of the robbery. Yeah, a robbery, a robbery in Jerusalem. And uh, it's a fun little scene, but he explains it all, blah, 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 kind of introducing who Poirot is to us as an audience. Uh, and while he's kind of monologuing, he sticks his cane in the wall, his walking stick in the wailing wall. Mm hmm. Uh, and then ultimately, as the 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 culprit tries to run away, they get clotheslined by the cane because they're not paying attention, which I thought was very silly, uh, but fun. Whatever, it's fine. But I want to know if any of that came from the book because I it was like a very movie opening. I, it felt less like a book thing and more like a movie thing to me. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it is a movie thing. The book opens with Puro waiting for a train in Syria. Uh, not the Orient Express yet. He'll get on the Orient Express later. Um, but he's he's waiting in Syria. He just solved another case for the French army. Um, they don't tell us what it was. I, I thought the movie's opening scene might be a reference to another Perot book. Uh, you would I, imagine, I couldn't yeah. find a definite answer on that. Um, I, I tried Googling it and everything just took me back to the movie. So yeah. I don't know. Um, but like you alluded to, I, I do think that having an introduction to Perot makes sense at the beginning of this movie. Uh, the Murder on the Orient Express is the 10th book in a series of books, so we can assume that readers are already familiar with their protagonist, but in this instance, moviegoers might need a little bit of an intro. And that's interesting. The fact that it's the 10th book is interesting. I was going to bring that up later um, because I looked that up to see because it was kind of related to a question I have mm -hmm. at the end here, <laughs> or a question related to the end of the story. Um, so we'll get to it then, but I, I was surprised to see that this was so far into yeah. the Perot, you know, yeah. anthology or whatever. All right. Does, uh, I wanted to ask a question about Perot's personality in this film, at least in this opening scene and kind of throughout, but specifically in this opening scene, he's presented as very, uh, kind of a sarcastic and witty character. Who's like making dry pithy little jokes as he, like sol you know, as he monologues and holds the holds court in front of everybody, and I wanted to know if that if if the vibe and and you can even go beyond this one scene, but just overall, if you felt the vibe of the character of Perot being this being you know the series. By the way, if we're trying to pronounce, I, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. <laughs> we one of our French or not, one of our listeners who speaks French. I don't think they are French. Uh, said is basically Perot, yeah. essentially, but. Who knows? I, not that they're wrong. I'm just if 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 you've always pronounced it different or whatever, I'm sorry. We're trying. Um, it's also I'm going to say it different throughout because it's Puro sounds weird to yeah. me. Poirot is I think how I always read it, 
when I when like when I would see yeah. the name, I would say like Poirot or Poirot or something. I don't know. Listen, just be grateful we're not saying Prorot. Yeah, <laughs> but Poirot. I want to know if his character in the film feels accurate to the kind of vibe of the character you get from the book, um, because I that's my first question: is is it does the characterization feel on correct? Um. So my, so my only point of reference for this character is this book. Yeah. I have not read anything else that he appears in. The movie version of him feels like cranked up a couple notches to me. Like uh, he's got some jokes every now and then. He's a little sarcastic, I guess. But it, it wasn't like the overall impression that I got of him in the book was that he's like a dry, witty, like sarcastic fellow i will say that it, it it tapers off considerably after this first scene yes like this first scene in the movie it's dialed up way more and then for the rest of the film he doesn't feel quite as you know i don't know quite as uh silly not silly but he doesn't feel quite as like cartoony car- not even cartoony he still feels kind of cartoony throughout just in different ways but like he he just he, he's not sitting there trying to make fun like zingers and like you know be witty like as he's talking as as much as it felt like in this first scene um in this first scene it felt a little bit more like i was watching like uh sherlock like the Mm -hmm. bbc sherlock or something or robert downey Mm -hmm. jr playing sherlock holmes or something as opposed to what i guess i thought i i I didn't know because i'd never seen or read uh anything of of the perot series so i had no idea but anyways Going off of that, uh, kind of related to his characterization, one of the things he says in the film is that he he kind of explains why he's good at solving crimes to some guy after he solves the, the Wailing Wall one before he leaves. And he says that um, he's good at it because imperfections stick out to him like a sore thumb or whatever, basically, because he's kind of obsessed with things being like balanced or neat. Mm-hmm. And we see this in the opening scene when he's walking and he steps in like some horse dung shit or something and he steps in it on one foot and he's like oh it's uneven or whatever and then he steps his other shoe in it so yeah. that it's even which is a little silly but whatever again just setting up the idea that he he likes things to be balanced and neat and tidy kind of a, you could i think you could kind of say like ocd adjacent mm-hmm. without being like explicitly like an ocd diagnosis for this character uh, and i want to know if that element of his character came from the books um, that caught me so off guard that I had to look it up. I did not get that impression from the book at all. Um, and apparently, according to Wikipedia anyway, that is a recurring trait of his in the books, but I didn't pick up on it at all in this book. Interesting. Okay. So, but it is, a, it is. A, apparently, yeah. according to the internet. Again, this is my only reference right. point for yeah. him. Yeah, but from what you're able to find. Okay. Interesting. So we're introduced to some of the characters before we get on. They're on at a train station, and bef- we're introduced to a few of the characters before we actually get on the train. And, and two of these characters we're introduced to again, which is like I feel like the only scene they're in until like halfway through the movie, and then once again at the end is the countess and her boyfriend. I don't, I don't the, even know the nature of their relationship. He's a count. He's a this, count. Yes. I thought she. Okay. No, and then she married. I like I said him. he was a dancer. I, Why do I have listen. a note that he's a dancer? They did say that. Okay, I thought I was losing my mind. My note says there's a dancer and he just beats up all these guys. 
I was confused by this character introduction. I didn't understand their dynamic. I didn't know who they were. And again, they go on to, in my opinion, not really be that important to the story mm-hmm. overall. Uh, uh, I want to know if the character of the dancer who beats up guys, and then because he beats them up because they take a picture of them. Yeah. And I didn't realize at this point that they were Countess and. And I, I honestly, I don't know if because they introduce him as a dancer. Be... <laughs> I swear. They do. No, yeah. they do. And I'm not 100% sure. In the book, they are a Hungarian count and countess. Yeah. And then she ends up being from the Armstrong family. Like, she ends up being right. Daisy's aunt, the younger sister of Daisy's mother. Mm-hmm. They're not dancers in the book. Okay. They're, they're just a count and a countess. And the movie introduces them as dancers but i don't recall if they're ever explicitly stated to be nobility but then later on when they're looking in the luggage they say that they're like traveling with diplomatic visas yeah which maybe you could do if you were like famous as as dancers i don't know i swear they said they were a countess and count or later which was then confusing to me because i didn't remember them being introduced that way at the beginning and i thought i missed something i just their characters i did not i I, I had the hardest time figuring out what was going on i was so puzzled (laughs) by that change it didn't seem like it had any payoff or any meaning. Like there was no reason to me to make them dancers. I it felt like they just wanted the scene where he's randomly like an MMA fighter. Yeah. Well, and it just if you want the thing where he's like protective of her or what or for some reason yeah. and then like Which and he I mean he is in the book yeah, just you could differently. St- yeah, you could still do that. I don't I, I don't know. I just I know. again and I did uh-huh. not look up the actor or anything. Maybe the actor is like a fighter or something and they just like yeah well i will say those are i think one of the other reasons i didn't recognize those two or that those two felt less interesting is they're also two actors that i did not know like they were both completely like i'd never seen them in anything whereas everybody else in this is it's like a star-studded cast of like right you know every other single person in this movie has like been in a million things those two i was like who are these and and then i and maybe that's not intentional, but like the fact that they knew they weren't going to play as major of a role. So like, well, let's not, we don't need to cast. Well, we won't cast like, you know, a huge name because they're not that important Mm -hmm. or something, which you could argue, you could ask even cast a, like a kind of like a stunt casting. If they're like barely in the, I didn't get those two characters. Didn't like them. (laughs) I, they just, they weren't in the movie enough for me to care about. And when they were in the movie, I was confused by what their whole deal was. So I was like, I don't, whatever. Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, very fun little detail. Uh, we're now on the train on our way. We've been introduced to everybody else, at least to some extent. There's a very fun one that I didn't mention where he's walking through this train station as we're, uh, we're, Perot is getting on the train and we walk all the way through the train station and we kind of see people on the train through the window and then we go up into the train and we're following from the ground through. There's lots of really cool inventive shots in this, mm-hmm. um, throughout. I have some notes about some other ones later. Um, but we're on the train now and it's the first evening and they're, they're going to bed. And we go into Poirot's room and he has, he's wearing this contraption around his head that is a, covers his mustache in like a leather mustache shaped thing (laughs) that was very silly, but very fun. 
and totally actually felt, I don't know if these things existed, but totally feels like the early 20th century yeah, kind of sure. contraption you would yeah. buy out of the back of like a ma- magazine or newspaper or something. The mustache keeper. Like, you know, <laughs> like I totally could believe it was a thing that existed, but I wanted to know if it was in the book. It's not mentioned in the book, uh, but I did think it was funny. I, I liked that addition. Yeah. I, I, the, cut your palm off, pomade budget in <laughs> half with the mustache keeper. You don't have to wash your face nearly half as much or something, whatever. We also find out a little bit of backstory here about uh, Poirot. And I wanted to know if this backstory came from the book because this felt like a movie thing to me real hard, knowing nothing. I kind of assume Poirot was like a little more like... I'm imagining, again, my point of reference for this sort of thing is mostly like uh, Benoit Blanc or uh, Sherlock um, for those kind of stories where we have like the genius detective. And modern interpretations, we get a little bit more of backstory for these characters. But my thought for what this was going to be was like, we don't really know much about Poirot. He's just like he's he's like this um dervish of of crime solving that whirls into a situation <laughs> and you know boom 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 solves the crime and whirls out and we don't really learn much about the person hercule uh-huh. perot we learn about the you know it's the the image the mystery the um the man the myth the man the myth the legend and and i, I just imagined we weren't going to l- like get much about like his backstory uh-huh. and so we get and we don't get much but we get a couple scenes where he makes reference to a lost love and he's having a conversation i think with book where he's like romance never goes unpunished there was someone once and then later on he's looking at a picture of like a woman mm-hmm. or something and i wanted to know if that element came from the book because that felt very movie to me yeah um well it is Uh, That line that you quoted does not appear in the book, uh, nor is there any reference to a previous romance. He does have some backstory, like, throughout the series. Again, I, like, poured over his his page on Wikipedia. Yeah. But I didn't see anything about him having a romantic interest, like, at all. Uh, But again, someone who has read more Puro works than i yeah know better i will say i was not a fan of that i didn't think it added yeah i didn't think it added anything either at all like kind of like the dancer count thing like there's no payoff there's no meaning it doesn't matter it doesn't yeah because i was trying to think like what could that what are we getting from him having this like lost uh, love or whatever and i'm like it doesn't really play into the story over all that much because the story ultimately comes to be about like justice and what justice means and like when is justice served and that sort of like it and it's not really about like romance or love you know and it's about honestly more like the the motivations for everybody's murder like the 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 plot the murder plot that happens is 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 about like familial love not Mm -hmm. like yeah yeah yeah, romantic love so it's 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 it just doesn't feel like it really ties in in any way like it would be one thing if the story was about like star-crossed lovers and some sort of murder between like a love trying you know what i mean like i could see trying to work that in in that story but here it's just doesn't feel like it matters and makes any sense again i think the idea is like well let's humanize mm-hmm. poro he we're, let's see the, like what's underneath the surface of this uh of this character and it's like i don't care like and not not that i don't care because <laughs> like some of my favorite moments in glass onion is learning a little bit more about benoit blanc right. i do care but like it just it didn't matter here in a way that felt tacked on yeah and unnecessary without being interesting i don't know 
anyways, uh, it doesn't surprise me that it wasn't in the book. Getting to some of the other characters, we're introduced to Willem Dafoe's character, uh, and early on, uh, our introduction to him is him complaining about to the the waiter or something about being sat at a table with um, Leslie Odom Jr.'s character because he does he doesn't think the the races should ming- co mingle mm-hmm. cohabitate. Uh, he basically is complaining about race mixing. Uh, and I want to know if that element of his character comes from the book and then if it later turns out to be a ploy because spoilers in the movie, we will go on to find out that he didn't actually care about that. That was just part of his character. Yeah. He's that they created because character. he's playing like a German racist guy. <laughs> I guess. I, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I have some thoughts on this because it is very different from how his character is portrayed in the book. So in the book, he is an American detective. We do come to find that out. But initially, he's undercover as like an obnoxious American salesman, mm-hmm. not a Nazi coded professor. Okay. Uh, he never complains about race mixing or anything like that. I kind of think the movie's take is a little more interesting, but it does come with some baggage that I want to touch on. Yeah. Now, I understand the movie wanting to place this story within history, and that's a lot easier to do looking back, right? Yeah. The the novel takes place in the early 30s, but of course, when Agatha Christie was writing it, she didn't know how the rest of the 30s and the 40s were going to play out. And there's actually a line in the book where the German maid is talking about the Armstrong murder. And she says, we are not so wicked as that in Germany. And I was like, oh, ma'am, I have terrible news for you. You know, reading in retrospect, you could also you could read it as like a like a. A naivete on that person's yeah. part, like a, yeah, a commentary on it, but obviously being written before, it's not. Yeah, not necessarily. But. It also came off to me like the movie had this anticipation that the audience would wonder where the racism was and felt compelled to, like, reference it, especially in regard to the romance between Mary Debenham and Colonel Arbuthnot. Now, in the book, Arbuthnot is described as the colonel from India and also brown of skin. As we saw earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, that could be Christie's way of describing a tan white guy, but it could also mean that he's a person of color. Uh, It could. In the book's case, that would be likely Indian and not black. But, and if that is the case, it's interesting to me that the 2017 movie felt that it had to comment on their relationship in a way that Agatha Christie seemingly did not in 1934. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting because you would, I mean, my assumption would be that more people would, I I think there's, the movie takes it and puts puts all of that racial animus into one character Yeah, where it ends up being not even what he's actually thinks or, like, it ends up being, like, part of an act. Whereas to me, I feel like, it would just be all all of the people would have a general sort of discontent for that. Maybe not. Yeah, I, maybe. I don't I don't have a super strong understanding. It just seems 
and he, like you said in the book, Agatha Christie doesn't really have any of the characters comment on it or anything like that. And we know from other things that Agatha Christie wasn't exactly the most right. Woke author. Well, and there is, I mean, there is other like racial stuff yeah. in this book. Um, mostly in regard, she's got the weird thing about Italians. Yeah. Um, and then she's got some other stuff later where Poirot's like, "Well, this was wasn't a crime of passion. It was cool, cold, and calculated. Therefore, only an Anglo-Saxon could ah, have done it." Nice. And I was like, "Yes." Great. Indeed. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. So there's like that kind of thing. Yeah. But, but there's not like this kind of more overt, like addressing of here's the racism yeah. that we get in the movie. Well, and I also think it's really weird. I think what would have been more satisfying to me is if everybody just would have been a little casually racist without it. It just feels weird to me to add it and then foist it onto the Nazi. When it's the 1930s, everybody was racist. Mm. Like, or at least, I mean, I don't want to say everybody was uh, racist. To some degree. A lot of people were racist. Like, a, 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 a large majority of the people back then, you know, and still, you know, depending on <laughs> whatever. But, like, it just, it, it feels a little silly to me to be like, oh, we're going to add, like, some a little bit of commentary on racism in there, but it's it's going to be this one character who's, like, basically, a, like, a Nazi without saying he's a Nazi. And then, oh, actually, he's not even a Nazi. It was all an act, and he's just, like, a, like a guy. And so there's actually not any racism at all. Like, it's just, I don't know. It just, it's just, it's, it is a weird way to add and then not add it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Because to me, I yeah, like I said, I, I would assume that basically everybody on that train that wasn't Daisy Ridley or Leslie Odom Jr. would be like, oh, yeah, we ain't cool with this. Assuming yeah. that the characters in the book were, you know, a, a white woman and a, a person of color, whatever, Indian, black, whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I know we don't have the 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 survey data from the 1930s to see what percentage of people were cool with interracial marriage, but I feel like or interracial relationships. But I, my understanding of history is it was a very low percentage of people. But I could be wrong about that. I very well could be wrong about that. Anyways, we then have uh, the first encounter and, and only, I guess, between um, Perot and uh, Ratchet. At this point, we don't know he's Cassetta yet. Uh, Johnny Depp's character, uh, Johnny Depp's character, uh, Ratchet is trying to hire, basically wants to hire Perot to like be his body, not bodyguard, but like kind of like a bodyguard mm -hmm. for the trip because he thinks somebody wants to hurt him. He's like, hey, can you keep an eye on everybody and just kind of like keep an eye out on things? And Perot's like, no, <laughs> I do not want to. Uh, and in the movie, he has this great line. Um and I don't remember what the setup for this is, but he's basically he's like, no, it's not for that reason. It's more personal than that. I do not like your face, uh, which was very funny. I laughed out loud at that. And I want to know if that line came from the book. It does. That line is verbatim from the book. And I laughed when I read it. <laughs> it's good. It's a good I line. was like, got him. Got him. <laughs> got him. And I knew that that character was Johnny Depp. Yeah. At that point, and I was like, yes. ah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, so does an avalanche derail the train uh, and strand them on a cold mountainside? No, the train just gets stopped due to like huge drifts of snow covering the tracks. So not as dramatic. No, I did like this change, though. I thought it added some like movie drama yeah. without messing with the story at it's still all. Still the same. It's functional... still this. Yeah, it's still the same functional thing. The train still gets stopped by snow. Yeah, it's just a little heightened a and little more bit. dramatic. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, so does Book, uh, which if you don't know, I don't think we mentioned this character at any point yet. 
um, Book is like he's like the director of the uh, he's like a director for the Orient Express. Yes, but also more importantly, is like a good friend of Poirot. Yes. <laughs> that was where I was going. But yeah, he also is like a director of some sort. Uh, I think I think in the movie just thing I read said like his, maybe his dad owns the line the railroad. Yeah, or that something was the like, impression like I got that. in the book too. Yeah, something like that. But he's a very good. He's a friend of uh, Poirot. Um, and after the mur- so the murder has occurred at this point, Ratchet has been found dead um, and Perot and Book are talking about it. And Perot's like, well, call the cops or whatever. And he's like, I'm on because Perot's like, I'm on vacation. I'm not I'm not solving this. Mis- get the call the police, call the cavalry, whatever. And Book's like, look, we could do that. But if we do that, who do you think they're going to pin it on? And he basically appeals to Perot's sense of justice and says, like, if we call the police, they're just going to pin it on either the doctor, Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, because he's a black guy, or Marquez, because, and he says, because of his name, again, yeah. because he's a person of color. And so, I, the, like, the, the book is basically being, <laughs> appeals to uh, Perot's sense of racial justice, which I found unlikely being the case in the <laughs> book, but I wanted to know if that was what, how that played out. And, and basically, that is how he convinces Perot to, to, to take uh-huh. on the case and solve the murders. He's like, look, if we call the cops, they're going to arrest one of, those, the, uh, one of the black people on the train. And that's, and you know, we don't even know what they're going to do. They're just going to pin it on him, basically. Oh, you're going to love this answer. <laughs> So Book does convince Perot to take on the case on the train, uh, but the reason that he does that, or the way that he does that, I guess, is by appealing to, like, his friendship with Perot, because he's like, this is going to look really, really bad for me. I need your help here, man, basically. Um <laughs> The movie's track of like him saying like, oh, they're they're going to pin it on on one of these two guys, one of these two people of color is kind of hilariously contradictory (laughs) to Book's portrayal in the book because he is absolutely convinced for the entire story that the murderer must be the Italian guy because Italians have tempers. And they like to stab people. Wait, which is the Italian guy? Is that Marquez? That's Mar- they changed it slightly. Okay. They made him like a, like Cuban in the movie. Yeah, I, I think, think he's I saw. Cuban or something yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, he's an Italian character okay. in the book. So yeah, I will say, <laughs> I, I I will say that I the vibe I got in the movie was not so much that Book was super woke, but that he knew that Poirot was. And he was appealing to Perot's sense of, uh, you know, uh, wokeness. Hey, like the vibe I got mm-hmm. in the movie was that he didn't want the police involved because he didn't want the police involved because it's his, it's a whole big headache for his yes. company and blah, blah, blah. For very greedy, selfish reasons, he didn't want the police involved, basically. And he was appealing to Perot's sense of like, again, uh, <laughs> racial uh, justice that he in order to get him to take the case. I didn't necessarily get the vibe that Book was like super progressive about this. Cause he seems like kind of an asshole all around. And the movie says that several times. <laughs> um, and he's like a snobby, rich white kid. Yeah. Like I, I totally, he's a nepotism, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. I, I like, it didn't surprise me that he would not particularly be super progressive in that regard. Yeah. It's, there's nothing to say that he isn't, doesn't agree with that, at least to some extent in the movie. True. But the vibe I got was more so that he's, he knows what will convince 
Perot less and it's less of like what he actually believes like he doesn't mm-hmm. care he just wants the police not involved and this is the way he can keep the police out of it by getting perot to figure it out but yeah the italians are stabby people though so <laughs> i mean i knew that like the temper thing was a stereotype but like throughout the book he's like it had to be the italian they love knives we are a stabby I was people like, I, don't, I have never heard this it's true this is true <laughs> Uh, great line in the movie. This movie has some great lines delivered by. Uh, look, I I don't want to <laughs> give Brand out too much of a hard time because I think he's a talented actor and director, but he also feels like he <laughs> he's a little bit of a ham. Yeah, he like gives himself the lead in all of his movies. Yeah, and then and then gives himself the most ridiculous hammy lines to deliver and i love that good for him i'm it just it made him a great lockhart yes in harry potter absolutely very hammy absolutely but yeah he is he's yeah. that kind kind of a guy yeah and uh but he has this line in the movie that i thought was great where he says my name is hercule Poirot, and i am probably the greatest detective in the world i did more spanish there than whatever but um <laughs> my french accent's bad but uh, but yeah, my name is Hercule Poirot, and I am probably the greatest detective in the world. I want to know if that line came from the book, because it's great. It does not. Uh, the closest we get to this, uh, he says, I am a detective. My name is Hercule Poirot, when he talks to McQueen. Yeah. Uh, and then later, when he's talking to the Countess, she asks if he belongs to the League of Nations, and he replies... I belong to the world. Uh, that's a good, so that's that's a, a good also line. a good line. I did see that Christie described Perot as egocentric. So I maybe this line fits with his character. Yeah. Can't say for sure, for sure, but it's a little, yeah, it, it felt in this movie. He's definitely has a sense of, um, it has an ego about him mm-hmm. that is, uh, at least to the audience, not as well earned as, you know, we've only seen him solve one crime. Right. We don't know that he, I mean, the movie is telling us he's the greatest detective in the world, but we have not seen, you know, a bunch of stories of him being so. But again, culturally, we know Poirot, he's like, you know, the archetype, but still, um, or one of the archetypes uh, of the, the most brilliant detective. So I get it, but it's just, it's, it's fun. Uh, and I, I think it, I think it works with this character overall and especially as played in the movie. And I think kind of looking at it and moving back sort of metatextually watching it as <laughs> Kenneth Branagh playing this character <laughs> makes it way more fun. Yes. <laughs> it's like Kenneth Branagh writing this line for him to say is I kind of love it. <laughs> Uh, so we find out that they find some some notes, some ransom note, not ransom notes, but threatening letters that Ratchet had been receiving. And in the movie, they are shown to be composed like modern. And when I say modern, I don't mean like I, what what we always see in movies as ransom notes, which is taking like newspaper letters, yeah, like cutting them out, cutting magazine them out letters, pasting, pasting them. them on a sheet of paper. <laughs> And I wanted to know if that is how the the threatening letters, if they are in the book, are described, because I thought that was really interesting. And I, I wasn't sure when that yeah. thing as like a thing began. Yeah. Uh, so he does receive threatening letters in the book, but they aren't described as looking like that type of ransom note. And I, I don't honestly, I don't know where or when that trope comes from. I have no idea. I don't know if that has its roots in real life or if it's always been kind of like a media trope. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. 
Um, Puro does say in the book that some of the letters look like they were written intending to be found by the police, like red herrings to throw the police off the scent, um, but they're not described as looking like newspaper cutouts. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so one of the notes they find, well, it's not one of these notes, but it's a different note. Um, this one's actually handwritten, mm-hmm. uh, and but it's it's, it's illegible. Been, it's been burned. Somebody yeah, tried to burn it. Somebody tried to burn it, and the way they are able to decipher what it says is by burning it more. And I wanted to know <laughs> if this was in the book because I was like, man, I guess that might work, especially with older inks that are like, yeah, maybe they would more be metal based or yeah. something where like they don't burn as quick. I I don't I don't know exactly. How, I'm sure it's it seems possible maybe but i didn't know and i want to know if it was in the book because it sounds like overall christy did a fair amount of research for and like a lot of the stuff included in her books was like real like based on reality and not like magical you know stuff (laughs) and i want to know if this was that because it seemed a little magical to me but also possible maybe i don't know he does do this in the book he doesn't explain what the science behind it is, so I'm I'm not sure either. Yeah. It reminded me though of the scene in National Treasure when they're exposing the the invisible ink with like heat. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, that's a thing though that 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 I know for sure you can do the invisible ink yeah. with, with heat thing. But this yeah, this was like we're literally burning the paper to reveal to reveal the, 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 lines. the lines on the burnt paper. I don't know. I was like, I guess maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, and maybe it was less burning it and more just putting light through it and it just happened yeah, to also or, burn. Or light or heat or, heat, or I, I don't know. know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. If somebody knows, if somebody's, uh, you know, a material scientist or whatever, <laughs> or the greatest an, an detective ex, in the world. <laughs> an <laughs> expert on old inks. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Let us know uh, what was going on there and if that was plausible. So we then find out, and this letter is how he figures it out, because he's, he's able to decipher and, and fill in some spaces on, the, on what was burnt on the letter and realizes that Ratchet is, in fact, Cassetti and that he m- kidnapped and murdered a baby and that his murder was revenge for it, which is basically what the note says. It's like the mm-hmm. blood, something about the baby's blood is on your hand, something I don't remember, but... Uh, basically her Perot already knew about this baby case because somebody yes. had written him a letter asking him to investigate it. So he knew about that. So when he saw this, he was able to put together that Cassetti was, and he goes, Oh, Cassetti was the guy who murdered blah, blah, blah. Um, and so he figures that all out. And I wanted to know if that is like the, the kind of surprise reveal that Cassetti is the ratchet is Cassetti, who is this mobster who murdered a baby. Yes. Um, it, it is revealed that Ratchet is Cassetti. Um, he was responsible for kidnapping, kidnapping and murdering Daisy Armstrong. And Poirot does find out about that through this like scrap of the letter. Oh, all right. So all that is the same. Yeah. Uh, right after that, we get, and I don't remember what exactly leads to this, but a hooded figure comes. Mm-hmm. What leads this in the movie? What are they? I don't, I don't remember. remember. <laughs> Something happens and they, a hooded figure goes running and they, they end up there. Uh, a foot chase uh, ensues through, and by the way, setting the scene, the train is stranded on a bridge. Yeah, in the movie, um, like right before a tunnel, basically, and so they there's like this chase off the train under and onto this bridge, and they're like running around on this bridge, and it's all silly, and it ends up being uh, Josh Gad, mm-hmm. 
was running for some reason. I don't even know away. what was going I, on. Here. I don't know. So was any of that in the book? It felt very movie to me, and it ended up feeling feeling like it didn't do anything or matter, <laughs> and so I wasn't sure what. Um, it, it was added to the movie. That does not happen in the book, and I don't understand why the movie did this at all. I can only assume they wanted an action beat. Yeah, I would but, have but to. But then they're just forced to immediately walk it back to throw suspicion off of him again. I, it was a very movie ad. It didn't make sense to me. Also, if I was Michelle Pfeiffer's character and Josh Gad broke ranks and I had to get fake stabbed, I would be pissed. Is that why she got fake stabbed? I was having yeah, trouble like, figuring out I'm how these pretty pieces sure, fit together there. I'm pretty sure the reason, because she does not get fake stabbed in the book either. Okay. They do find the murder weapon like in her compartment and she like screams and swoons and yeah. whatever. Um, but I, I, I assumed in the film that they had her uh, get stabbed to like distract from his whole thing. I guess that's possible. So was in the movie, was he just like trying to run away? I don't I, don't I guess. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Uh, but then they capture him and they corner him and they're having a conversation with him and they basically figure out that he was stealing money from, he worked for Cassetti. Well, they knew he worked for Cassetti. Yeah. He said he worked for Cassetti or Ratchet. Um, and, but he, they figure out that he was stealing money from him, essentially. Yeah. And they're like going through the books and <laughs> Perot has this great line where he's like, it's all you're full. Of, it's full of chocolate. And he's like, what is it called? And he turns to book or somebody and it's like, what? And they're like, and the guy's like fudge. And he's like the fudge. It's full of the fudge. And it was very funny. I liked that a lot. I want to know if that line came from the book. It's not from the book. Uh, there's never any indication in the book that McQueen was stealing from ratchet. I did like that line. I did think it was funny. I regret to say that it felt out of character for Perot to That's me. That's fair. That's fine. <laughs> I just enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. It made me laugh a lot, but I, I totally didn't seem like it necessarily fit perfectly in line with his character. <laughs> I just enjoyed it. Uh, so then we get up to a point where Perot is having a conversation with Daisy Ridley's character, and she essentially like confesses ish kind of roughly she basically is like yeah he needed to die or something like that and it's yeah. implied like that she's like yeah basically confessing and as this happens all of a sudden um leslie odom jr shows up and shoots perot uh in the arm mm -hmm. and i want to know if any of that came from the book again this all felt very movie to me and i was confused at first at what was even happening or like why he shot him and then it i think ultimately it ends up being that he, because Perot figures out that, well, he could have killed me if he wanted to. He was, we set up earlier that he was in the military and he's like a sharpshooter or whatever. And so he could have killed me. There's no reason he would have missed from that distance or whatever. And so he intentionally didn't kill me. And so he was like kind of distracting from Daisy Ridley. Yeah. Confessing, I think, or something. I'm, again, I'm not entirely sure what that all was about. And I, I want to know if any of that came from the book or if you could shed any light. This is another big movie change um, and another one that I don't understand for similar reasons to the Josh Gad chase scene change. And again, the movie just has to immediately walk it, uh, walk it all back because the whole point is that basically everyone is like a little bit implicated in some way. But as long as they don't break ranks, 
it's fine, but it doesn't work when one character is suddenly way more implicated than the others. So in order to still have the conclusion, you have to like immediately walk back these big moments that they keep doing. Yeah. Although is this, is this the way in the movie that, that his character gets implicated at all? Is there some other element that implicates his character? We find out eventually that he knew Colonel Armstrong. No, I know that, but I'm saying, okay, I don't know. I, I there's a lot of moving parts in this. I've only seen it once, so I'm not. I, I, yeah. I do not. I do not have all of these pieces straight in my head, even remotely. So I, this may be frustrating if you're like very familiar with Murder on the Orient Express. You're like, no, because of blah blah blah. But um. But I was wondering if maybe the movie is if this is the only way his character gets implicated at all up until this point. You know, like otherwise, would he just not even have remotely been a suspect until he shot Poirot? Maybe. Can't maybe. Maybe. Because I I, I don't remember at what point the movie reveals that he knew Colonel Armstrong. Yeah, I don't remember either. It is later because that's because well, because Perot monologues yeah. about it. Later, I mean, he, yeah, he monologues, and that like that is what connects him to the case in the book and yeah. in the movie. But I, I I don't know. The scene just overall didn't really make sense to me. I would I would agree with that. I was a little bit confused at what I was supposed to be what what was exactly supposed to be transpiring here and what I was supposed to be getting out of it. But whatever. Um, but now we're into the final thing. He gets everybody off the train and goes into the tunnel. Well, they have to because the train is getting put back on the track, so they'll have to get off the train. But they all go sit in the tunnel uh, in the, the the Last Supper. <laughs> they literally, <laughs> I mean, come on. It's, they sit on one side of a table um, or of, of several tables in this tunnel, uh, which I thought was fun. I thought it was a good place for the climax, like out in front of the train, kind of in this tunnel. Yeah, um, on the, the, Yeah, it works. Uh, it's a good tableau for your for your final scene. Um, or for your climax. Uh, and I wanted to know if this line is in specific, and it's the one I used in the quote to open this episode, because it's a fuck, it's a fun, great line. And Perot says, you tell your lies, and you think no one will know. But there are two people who will know. Yes, two people. Your God and Hercule Poirot. It is time to solve this case. Which I thought was great. I want to know if it came from the book. It's not from the book. Is corny, but I liked it. Very corny. And it's corniness. Yes. I was on board. I love corny mysteries. It's one <laughs> of the reasons I love Knives Out and Glass Onion is it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's like here to have fun. We're solving a silly mystery, but also it's got like stuff to say. I, I, I'm i down for it, but it was, uh, it was, I, yeah, it was cheesy, but I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. But not, so not at all from the book. No. Not any element of it that you recall. No. Okay. He doesn't even say it's time to solve this case before he gets to the end. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then the big reveal, and I did not have this spoiled, kind of. The big reveal is that they all conspired to murder Cassetti. They all had some relation to the 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 family of the either the baby specifically or the family of mm-hmm. the baby that Cassetti kidnapped and murdered. And so they all conspired with Michelle Pfeiffer's character, who is the grandmother of the baby, to uh, to murder Cassetti. 
I did not have that spoiled in its entirety. That was actually a surprise. What I did have spoiled that I thought I knew when I when I was talking about this in the prequel episode is that I thought everybody was somehow implicated in the murder. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, what I thought it would happened was that they had all planned to murder him independently. Uh. And and then somebody got to him and, and no, no no not that somebody got to him first but that like <laughs> they had all set their plans in action and either somebody's I thought it all like ended up being the thing where it's like like that 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 um brain not a brain teaser but that like uh law school question where it's like okay if 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 one person forces a guy to eat poison and then the second person pushes them off a cliff and then the third person shoots them as they're falling, mm-hmm. who killed them? Yeah. I thought it was that. Mm-hmm. I thought where all of them did something that either would have killed him or were in the process of doing something that was going to kill him. And so her Perot figures all that was my thought of, I did not, I truly did not know that they all conspired together to do this plan, which I thought was really interesting. And they all st- take a stab which i thought was really weird (laughs) um and i wanted to know if that's how it plays out in the book yes it does Uh, this is the solution to the mystery in the book as well um and i also did not have that spoiled for me when i read it which is a rare occurrence for me because i'm a read ahead kind (laughs) of a girl yeah i'm a look up the plot on wikipedia while i'm watching the movie girl um but i did not have this spoiled uh so it was a lot of fun to read it is the same although i did not get the impression from the book that they all like went into his compartment at once and like took turns stabbing, stabbing him. him i thought that was that really was not weird. the yeah. impression that i got but maybe, that, maybe yeah. that is what happened i don't know fair enough so he has solved it he's figured it all out and basically now the he gets down to it and he's like look i you know, you go, you murdered a murderer, you know, I get it. Uh, but also my sense of justice won't allow you all this to get away with this. Um, and he walks over and he sets his gun down on the table in front of them. And he says, basically, he's like, look, I can't lie. Uh, so if you guys want to go free, you'll have to kill me. Somebody will have to kill me. Cause I'm not, I'm not going to lie. And uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, the grandmother of the baby that was murdered, picks up the gun and she kind of says a few things, but then she tries to shoot herself and the gun clicks because it doesn't have any bullets in it. And I want to know if any of that happens in the book and then I want to discuss what was going on there because I was a little bit unsure at first. I think I got to the point of where I, I, I think I know what was why he did all this, but I want to know if it came from the book first. It does not happen in the book. Uh, I wasn't sure what the movie was trying to to do with that. Yeah. So my, as I thought about it, my guess is that Perot's monologue about like, oh, I, I, you have to kill me. I can't, um, I can't lie. I, I, if you guys are killers, I have to turn you in. And he might even yeah. say something like that. He might say those words exactly to some extent. I can't remember. Um, because eventually he says you're not killers. And I wanted to know, and I'm thinking that maybe when he goes over and he sets the gun on the table, he's basically giving them the chance to prove whether or not they are quote unquote murderers. Like if if you are murderers, you'll try to shoot me um, and you won't shoot me because I don't have any guns or bullets in the gun, but I'll know that you're capable of killing other people like you're murderers or whatever. And I'll turn you guys in. If you don't, 
then he it's like a test basically i yeah. think that's what it's going for i, I actually think, think that, that kind of works that's a good explanation yeah, yeah and i actually think it's kind of an interesting clever kind of way to wrap that up um and have him be okay with not turning them in mm -hmm. again of what we know of perot kind of his character in the movie of him being like a very strong sense of justice quote unquote um i think having him kind of test them in a way where he now feels comfortable letting them go free I think makes a lot of sense. So. Yeah. But it is a movie edition, which is interesting. Uh, but then finally, I wanted to know if uh, he does ultimately lie to the cops like he does in the movie and basically says, um, you know, somebody else. He comes up with the first. The yeah, first, it was a rival gangster. Yeah, rival got, gangster on got on the train and, and then yeah. got off the train. Yeah. And I wanted to know if that was what. He, how it kind of ends in the movie and also if the whole concept of Poirot kind of struggling with the concept of justice in general is kind of the theme of the end of the book because in the movie it definitely feels at least a little bit like part of the point is Poirot has a very strong sense of justice but this 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 particular case challenges mm -hmm. his conception of justice because yes all these people conspired to murder a guy but you know they murdered a guy who was like a shithead who murdered a baby like okay like you know what is justice blah 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 and i thought that was interesting and i wanted to know if that any of that kind of any of those elements came from the book so they do ultimately decide to lie to the police and let everyone get away with it so to speak his struggle with justice was not an impression that I got from the book. I, if that was in there, I did not pick up on it. It seemed to me more like he presented these two explanations already knowing that he wanted to let them off the hook. I will say that as I thought more about the movie's ending, I think it's similar in the movie that he already, like when he puts the gun on the table, he already knows what he's going to do. It's either yeah. one or the other. He's If they try to kill him, he's going to turn them in or if they don't he's not going to um but i think there is still a little bit of him kind of morally struggling with it which i thought was particularly interesting um and this goes back to the point earlier about this being the 10th book i was like if this was the first book i don't know how much sense that would make mm -hmm. of like that feels like a, a a third movie or second or third movie thing right it's like our character sort of like he's he's been doing this thing where he catches the criminal and sends them off to, to jail or whatever and then eventually down the road he gets to a point where he gets to a case where it's like oh it's not so cut and dry like you know you know morality and and justice is more complicated than that uh you kind of have to kind of weigh all the different elements against each other and finding out that this was a 10th book i was like okay that tracks more with that whereas it being the first movie in this series or even just a standalone movie as it has been made many times you know or standalone play or whatever i don't know if that works quite it works mm -hmm. for the audience just for the character it doesn't feel like it works quite as well yeah. anyways um that all makes sense interesting all right those are all of my questions katie it's time to find out what you thought was better in the book you like to read Yes, I love to read. What do you like to read? Everything. I've got a couple things. <laughs> uh, so Mrs. Hubbard, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, um, the night of Cassetti's murder, she makes a hubbub insisting that there was she saw a man in her compartment. Um, and we find out eventually that this is her like 
creating this false murderer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they didn't do that in the movie. They didn't have her, like, make a fuss that night because she's, like, yelling. She? N- no. I thought she said something about seeing somebody. Oh, hang on, Okay, though. sorry, 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 sorry. Okay. So she, in the book, she she makes this big fuss, and she's, like, yelling, and the the conductor's like, well, there's there's nobody here. I don't know. You must have dreamed it. I don't know what you want me to do about it. There's nobody here. Um, and she keeps insisting that she saw someone. And what the movie does is nicks that scene, and then later on... When he tells them that Cassetti was murdered, she's like, well, I saw a man and no one believed me. Uh, And I just don't think that works. Yeah. Why cut the first thing? Yeah. And then have her just like, well, actually. Yeah. Later on. No, that's fair. Um, I don't think I caught it if the movie said this, but in the book, they reason or Perot reasons that there must be at least two assailants because some of the stab wounds are right-handed and some of them are left-handed. Um, and it ends up being like, it ends up being like a little bit of a red herring. Um, and then it ends up being like kind of a clue later on. Cause he makes everybody write their name down so that he can see which hand is their dominant hand. And all of them are right-handed except the, the princess refuses to write her own name. So it kind of like casts a little bit of extra suspicion onto her. I just thought it was a fun detail. I don't know if they specifically mention right-handed and left-handed, but they do talk about the stab wounds and specifically say that two of them were something. I thought he said like more were deeper or something. They they talk about that in the book as well. Yeah, like some of them are deep and some of them are kind of shallow. Yeah, I, th- I think they mentioned that. I don't remember the handedness thing yeah. though in the movie. The the note fragment that we talked about that he, like, applies heat to to see what it mm-hmm. says, the movie changes what it says, kind of. Um, so in both the book and the movie, the note fragment says Daisy Armstrong's name. Yeah. In the movie, they take some of the letters out yeah. of her name. That's not so in the book. You would just see her full name. And I thought that was a weird choice because it doesn't matter. Like, it feels like that's something that's going to serve to drag out the plot a little bit. Like, he's going to have to figure out yeah. what does this mean. But then he just immediately knows what it means. I would agree because it, it also, it's not even, I was trying to figure out what Like, that, why did you bother? Why would you do that? Because it's also, yeah, it's literally immediately, it's like, yeah. oh, this is the Armstrong case, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I didn't know that, but I wouldn't have known either way. Like, right. as an audience member. Yes, you wouldn't have known either way, like, so it doesn't matter. If all the letters were there, I would have been like, what's that? I don't it's know what the arm is It's such a weird strong. choice. Yeah. yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> Small thing. Um, when they are telling McQueen, Josh Gad's character, um, about when he reveals to him that Ratchet was really Cassetti which we ultimately find out that he already knew. But anyway, um, when he's like, well, actually, your employer was Cassetti and he was responsible for this horrific thing. Yeah. And McQueen says, that damned skunk. (laughs) And I'm really disappointed that I didn't get to hear Josh Cad call Johnny Depp a damned skunk. I just really wanted that. I didn't get it. That would have been fun. 
Another line from Perot that I really liked that I don't think made it into the movie, I didn't catch it if it did, was uh, the impossible the impossible cannot have happened. Therefore, the impossible must be possible in spite of appearances. Real quick, it's very possible. I don't know if this is what it is. But I, I, I just had to look and make sure. And there is a website called the Racial Slur Database. Oh, gosh. I was looking to make sure skunk wasn't a racial slur. Is it? It's not. Not. I don't know if that's the context of what it is in the book. In, in, in On this website, and again, this says contributions needed. This may not be correct, but this is saying that skunk can be used as a racial slur for mixed race people. Interesting. I, it says hmm. contributions needed. I don't know if that's actually true i don't know this is the first thing i found i was just trying to go back and make sure that like maybe that's why they changed <laughs> yeah it. maybe if i don't I know i don't know we'll learn something new but I, is day. there any implication that cassetti is like mixed race or anything and the... they say he's italian okay well they, they don't that, there was no implication that i caught because this specifically says somebody who's white and black like and oh. like mixed race so that wouldn't huh. necessarily make sense i've never heard that before. i've never again it said citation needed so i yeah. don't that could have just been anybody i don't, I don't know right. how that it's website works anybody could have put that on there or it could just be very old. yeah i don't know anyway uh when he's searching through everybody's luggage in the book um we get to uh willem defoe's character who again remember is is quite a different character in mm -hmm. the book um, and he like opens up his suitcases and it's just full of liquor. <laughs> he's just traveling with a bunch of liquor and he's like, oh, yeah, prohibition didn't agree with me. Yeah. Sorry. Going back, I just I, I was reading while you said that last line that that if the impossible cannot have happened. Therefore, the impossible must be possible in spite of appearances. Yeah. Is that the first place this line is from? That's a very famous iteration. Uh, of... I don't know. Okay. Because like that, um, I'm trying to remember where else, there's this, another movie, maybe it's Sherlock or something, where somebody says, oh my god, it's something like, you know, once, once you've ruled out all that is not possible, whatever is left, in spite of how possible it seems, must be the truth or something. There's some movie or show or something that says a line. Sure not in Knives Out? It might be Knives Out. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't no, remember. I, I don't know if this is where that line originates I don't know if or that, not, you know. or if it's a variant on something that's common like a know. common saying or something i just yeah, liked I it yeah no it's good because it reminds me very much of other similar lines from other things yeah um and my last thing for better in the book um so we find out that the countess is uh daisy armstrong's aunt right? yes. we find out that that out part way through and prior to finding that out in the book um when perot is talking to the princess um it comes out that she was like had an intimate relationship with the family yeah like she knew them very well and pruro specifically asks her about the mother's younger sister the countess um and the princess is like oh well i i don't know where she is i haven't kept up with her and so then later on when it comes out that the countess is the sister, Poirot goes back to the princess and is like, you knew that was her. You lied to me. And she's like, yeah, I lied and I'd do it again. <laughs> like, go off, queen. I would have loved to see Judy Dench <laughs> deliver that I line. know, right? Great. 
I can just imagine her saying that to James Bond. Like, she's right? yeah, just like, yeah, that's right in her wheelhouse. All right, let's go ahead and find out what Katie thought was better in the movie. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. Um, they made some changes to Mrs. Hubbard, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, that I thought were fun. Uh, she's kind of nondescript-ish in the book. Well, based on the description. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, she's, she's just like kind of just like an older lady, and she's always talking about like her daughter and like showing people pictures of her grandchildren, um, hiding in plain sight kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Uh, but I thought making her kind of like a i have called her a yeah she's kind of a cougar she's like a husband hopper um like a a fun lady she's like a kind of like a like a femme fatale yeah yeah she's got a femme fatale like a black widow kind of a feel to her um i thought that was fun Uh, i also thought it was fun and dramatic at the end when she takes her wig off and she suddenly looks way older yeah um, I thought having Helena be a complete wreck who's addicted to barbiturates was uh, interesting. Um, given like what her backstory was, I thought that made sense for her character. What's her backstory? She is the sister of Daisy Armstrong's mother. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew that, but yeah. okay. So, I thought there was something else. So the, the, I don't remember how deep the movie delved into this, but after Daisy Armstrong is murdered... Like the whole family commits suicide, like her mother and father. I I think it mentions at least her mother committing suicide. I don't yeah. remember about her dad or not, but yeah. Yeah. So it ends up being like this even right. more horrific yes. tragedy. Which is what Perot says at the end. It's yes. like, you know, is one murder doesn't affect one person. It affects yeah. countless lives or whatever. Yeah. Um, and speaking of, I liked the addition that Armstrong actually wrote to Puro for help with the case. But by the time he got the letter, it was too late for him to do anything. Yeah. That was not in the book. Oh, and I, I thought, book? yeah, I thought that was a good addition. So in the movie or in the book, then does he just know of the case? Yeah. Okay. He wasn't like written about it. He just heard no. of it or something. Well, and. What it is in the book is that it's like this. It was an incredibly famous right, case. Yeah, like the Lindbergh baby, yes. which is what we talked about in the prequel. Which yeah, is it was part of inspired the by for, that. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, everybody would have known about right. it, especially someone who was involved with like crime and and detective work. Yes. And... Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> I just I wasn't sure. OK, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's go ahead and talk about a few things that the movie nailed. As I expected. Practically perfect in every way. Uh, there are a lot of details. Uh, I just have like a, a couple things. Um, Ratchet does try to hire Poirot to like keep him safe, which I think is a weird thing to hire a detective for. It sounds like bodyguard work, but whatever. Um, and he does decline. Uh, the array of evidence that they find in Ratchet's compartment is all pretty spot on. Uh, the broken watch, the, the, the or no, the, the handkerchief, handkerchief, the the pipe cleaner, yeah, pipe all that cleaner, different yeah. stuff. McQueen's line, so they got him after all, and mm. then Puro immediately like, you're assuming he was murdered. Mm-hmm. That's from the book. Uh, they do find the red kimono, red herring, uh, in Puro's suitcase. And then the extra conductor uniform they do find in the German maid's suitcase. I did not get the, I did not understand. I don't think the movie or else I missed it, understood how those pieces 
mattered or fit with anything. I didn't understand the kimono. We saw a person run down the hallway yeah. in the kimono, and then it just ends up in a suitcase later. And I was like, "What is the the connection kimono here? is literally just a red herring?" Okay, like literally. Yeah, it's, it's a red literally. Kimono. It like it, it's it doesn't matter. Okay. It's just a red herring to throw you off the scent. Okay. And the the thing, how he knows that the end up knowing that the handkerchief belongs to the princess is that the H is N. Yeah. In, in Russian. Russia. Yeah. And her name is Natalia. Yep. All right. We got a handful of odds and ends before we get to the final verdict. So I thought it was an interesting choice. There, Like I mentioned earlier that there are a lot of interesting shot choices in this movie. And I actually have mixed feelings about this one. I thought it was really interesting at the time, and I still do. It's interesting. I don't know <laughs> if I like it or dislike it more. <laughs> I think I like it. But when we find, after the murder of Ratchet, um, when they find his body and they're going into the room, the whole thing plays out from like a single take from a top-down camera. Yeah. And like Perot standing out and it's, so it's looking straight down at the top of everybody's heads, basically standing in like the the little hallway in the train car uh, as they're standing outside the room, kind of looking in. And like uh, the doctor comes up and I think Book comes up and there's like two or three, three or four people there um, kind of having a discussion and talking about stuff. And I thought it was really interesting um, I thought it was fun because you just listen like you can't see any faces. So mm -hmm. you're just listening to people talking and like kind of looking at body language slightly, which I thought was an interesting choice. Like it makes it's just a different way to kind of experience and, and focus on different elements of the mystery you're watching. Um, it also gives you I, I, I don't know if this is what they're going for, but especially later with the. Um, when we actually go into the room, because the same thing happens when we actually look at the crime scene. It all plays out from this camera shot from the top of the room looking down. Yeah. Where, like, uh, Johnny Depp's body is laying on the on the bunk, and then, like, all the pieces of evidence are kind of on the floor. And it's a little bit, almost reminds you of, like, a clue board. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Was one thing. And then the other thing, it also kind of reminded me of some some elements of like a video game or something like like mm -hmm. playing like a mystery video game and like the way they lit it is really cool because you can see all the very specific clues quote unquote like the pipe cleaner the handkerchief the body and like where they are in relation to each other and stuff which mm -hmm. i thought was interesting but that being said i'm also like i was a i was a little bit like maybe it's too clever for its own good because part of me really wants to see the faces of the actors as they discuss this murder scene, especially knowing later that at least one of the people, cause the doctor is there and I don't remember, again, I don't remember who yeah. all is there, but at least the doctor, at least one of these people was involved in the murder. And so being able to see their face and how they're reacting to all this would be interesting. But I also like the kind of detached, I don't know. I couldn't, I could go, I kept going back and forth on how much I liked it. I, I thought it was very clever and interesting and different, but also I was like, but I kind of want to see the people because that's like the most important important part mm -hmm. but you do see the people you just see a different part because you're just listening and watching body language <laughs> it's interesting i think it's interesting and i'll give it props for at least being unique yeah it's, <laughs> you know? yeah it's different yeah i just want to acknowledge real quick how excited i was when i got to the point in the book where i realized that johnny depp would primarily <laughs> be playing a dead body yeah 
very excited. Very nice. It also cracked me up when they're like, when I, the reading the prequel notes now, thinking back, because at the time I didn't know Johnny Depp was the one who died, about the note about Kenneth Branagh being like, you're late to set again, I'll replace you. I'm like, he's in one scene, or not one scene, but he's in like three scenes and then he dies. Was he late on the first day to set? How many days could he possibly have been? He's in none of the movie. He's in the first 15 minutes of the movie and then he's dead. And it's clearly not him. It's like a dummy <laughs> laying in the bed. It's like, okay. He's in a couple flashbacks. A couple. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. It's just very funny. I mean, it's like, I can't imagine he was in that much of the movie. Uh, I also really love, there's a one uh, a single take shot uh, from Poirot's perspective after he, as he's announcing that um, Ratchet has been murdered and he's walking down the train car, like the dining car, and he's like looking at everybody. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of seeing everybody's reaction. And this is a scene where uh, McQueen is like, they got him or whatever. And he's like, well, I didn't say he was murdered. And I really liked that. I thought that was a cool shot, like just letting us kind of sit and see everybody's performance and everybody's kind of reaction to this news. Uh, and then it spins around and he's like, that's when he says, I'm Hercule Poirot and I'm probably the greatest detective in the world designed for a trailer and it literally is like the first trailer for this movie it's a great trailer though and it's a a, although in the trailer the the background music is believer by imagine dragons which that's very 2017 well if that did not age the greatest uh that being said i i don't hate imagine dragons as much as a lot of people do i they're whatever to me i don't i don't have strong feelings either way for the most part i'm just like whatever they're fine it's just a generic like generic pop rock rock band it's fine i i don't i don't hate a lot of people hate imagine dragons and i'm like i don't understand hating them. I'm, I I'm going to be real. I don't understand having the hate for a generic, a, a band is generic, whatever. Yeah. That being said, I do think that the, the, the trailer in specific, I, I the song works okay because it's, it's just the repeating beginning part, like the drum yeah. beat over and over again, and it's got this kind of like tension building uh, like edging property to it. I think the song works okay for the scene. That being said, I think I'd rather see that trailer with like a I don't know, the score or something. Yeah. Like, I think maybe it would age better <laughs> if nothing else. But I think it's a great trailer. It's a great shot. It, it, Regardless of everything else, I think it's a really good shot um, that that is not too clever for its own good. It's it's clever in the sense of, like, I love a, a oneer. I love that kind of, like, interesting, different style of filmmaking. But it also makes totally perfect sense. Unlike the top-down shot where I'm like, eh... I could see like not doing that that way because you want to see the faces of the people. In this one, it makes perfect sense. You're from Poirot's perspective. You get to watch, see what he's seeing, how everybody's reacting to this news as you slowly move through this cart. So it's it's the perfect symbiosis of clever filmmaking with what serves the narrative and the mm-hmm. story, in in my opinion. And so I I, I like that a lot. But. Um, I have a cinematography note. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's another shot, I think, earlier in the film. Um, this is that one where I was talking about when he's getting into the train, I think. I think. Is it? I think. Uh, but there's there's a shot uh, panning over everyone, like, in the dining car and showing some of them, like, through the glass. Mm-hmm. And you can see, like, like as it goes through the glass, they, like, double for a moment. Um, and I thought that was fun, considering that everyone on the train either has an explicit dual identity 
or is hiding part of their background. I thought it was a nice little bit of like storytelling foreshadowing yeah. through the cinematography. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I will have to say my final note, and this isn't, this may be more of a critique of the movie than of the story in general. It also may be that I'm slightly, uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm coming from a perspective of the, the, the mystery stories that I've seen the most of and remember the most and have had the largest impact of me on me are standing on the shoulders of giants are standing on the shoulders of Agatha Christie. Yeah. So take that for uh, into consideration for this, <laughs> my next point here, but it did feel a bit like the mystery just sort of gets exposition dumped at the end mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't feel like, the pieces were set up quite as effectively as I would have wanted them to be. And I think part of that is the movie's fault, but I also felt like maybe part of that was just the nature of the story itself. I don't know. I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think the movie is definitely worse. Um, but the, the book does feel a little bit like that, too. Like, a lot of it falls into place pretty cleverly. Yeah. But Poirot also makes some deductions at the end about how a handful of people are connected to the Armstrong case that kind of come out of nowhere. That was my biggest issue was he's like, and you're the the, yeah. the blank of the blank that knew the Armstrongs this way. And I'm like, well, how would what is I supposed to ever not, yeah. not, not, not that I'm think I was ever going to solve it, but like <laughs> how was that information? I don't know. It just felt like I, some of those pieces were just kind of like whoop appeared at the end. Right. And I, th- I think what we're supposed to gather is that once he started connecting most of the people to the Armstrong yeah. case, he just started kind of Filling theorizing in, yeah. like, OK, well, how could this person be connected? Right. How could that person be connected? Um, on the other hand, this trope is also something that I really love about like detective and whodunit stories. I love the explanation at the end. I find it so satisfying. I agree completely. I do love I don't I, I don't have a problem with the with the <laughs> with the detective getting up and monologuing and explaining everything. I love it. It's fun. I, it's one of my favorite parts of detective movies and that sort of their mystery stories. Um, I just like when they're explaining it, when I go, ah, like when yeah. my brain goes, ah, I see what they did. Ah, that makes sense. Whereas this one, I was like, okay, it happened a few times where I was like, ah, and then other times I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I just don't like when I'm like, wait, what? When they're explaining, I like to be like, ah, and it was a little bit out of balance at the end for me of like, ah, versus what? So that that's my only comment on that. All right. Before we get to the final version, we want to remind you, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us for a few bucks a month. Get access to bonus content. If you give us five bucks a month, a month or more, you get access to our bonus episodes. We just released a few days ago our episode for January on the movie Dread. If you want to hear what we have to say about Dread, uh, give us five bucks. You can go listen to it and the whole back catalog and the future catalog of all of our bonus content where we talk about stuff that is not adaptations or it can, some of it might be sometimes, but in general, not adaptations, uh, just kind of whatever we want to talk about. And we get one episode a month at least. Um, so go listen to that and support us. We would appreciate it. We also would really love it if you would follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Goodreads, any of the social media platforms, just search for this film is lit. Like, subscribe, follow, ring the bell, whatever you need to do to get the (laughs) notifications uh, from us uh, when we post stuff. Because in particular, we love to get your feedback on these episodes. We will talk about it in the prequel episode. So come back for the prequel episode. Write us a little note. 
We'll read it. We'll talk about it. And then you can hear what we have to say about what you had to say about what we had to say. It's very meta. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) Katie, it's time for the final verdict. Now, uh, are you ready for your sentence? Sentence? But there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict afterwards. You make your adaptations. You make your changes. And you think no one will know. But there are two people who will know. Yes, two people. Your God and me. (laughs) I did not read this. It is time to solve this case. Oh, God. That was amazing. Thank you. In the case of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express versus its 2017 film adaptation, it all boils down to the tightness of the plot, an essential element of any whodunit, I would argue. While there should be misdirects and red herrings, those elements should not disrupt the overall flow and progression of the plot. My main contention with the 2017 film is that it made some very Hollywood additions to the story, namely McQueen attempting to flee the chain. McQueen! And then you point. And then he goes, what? Sorry. Um, (laughs) And Perot chasing him down, uh, followed shortly by Albuthneau attempting to shoot Perot and then getting into a fist fight with him. Uh, And don't misunderstand me. My problem is not that these additions exist. I understand how stories are adapted and what's needed in a big-budget Hollywood thriller versus a 200-page vintage detective novel. My problem is that because the story was already so tight, the movie threw in those additions and then immediately had to undo them or else run the risk of throwing the story completely off track, pun very much intended. So what you end up with is something that feels sloppy and ill-conceived with action beats that ultimately don't have any kind of impact on the conclusion of the story. While the movie made many other changes, some that I liked and some that I didn't, it's primarily for this reason that I'll be giving the first showdown of 2023 to the book. There you go! The book! wins katie what's next up next we will be talking about drive a novel by james salas and 2011 film fantastic uh i saw this movie in theaters when it came out i have not seen it since then and i did not know it was based on a book so i don't know anything about this movie I, I liked so. it quite a bit when it came out, but it, it's been, like I said, I, I remember literally nothing about it other than Ryan Gosling wears that jacket and drives a car. I would assume he did drive a car, just based on the title. Yep. I guess he could be driving any other vehicle, but... No, it's a car. Mostly, I think. <sighs> primarily. I think he should drive, like, something else. Like a bus, a maybe. Bus. Yeah, a school bus. Yeah, it'd be fun. But yeah, no, it'll be interesting. Uh, it's, uh, again, a very uh, highly regarded movie when it came out. Uh, I liked it quite a bit, but it'll be fun to revisit it. We'll be talking about that uh, in two weeks' time, and in one week's time, we'll be previewing Drive and seeing what you all had to say about the murder on the Orient Express. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.